Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Spent the morning as usual on Real Clear Politics before coming here on a Wednesday morning. The coffee tastes nice. <laughs> Equally sleep deprived and incredibly nervous, <laughs> as I expect to remain for the next week. We are six days out from the American presidential election. When we come to you next week round this table, it'll be the morning after the night before, and I have no idea what state we'll be in, but for now, I think we're doing okay. Uh, not too nervous. I went to the new Pierre Antoine Crimp site poll aggregator, which is the newest, fanciest one with the. What's it saying? Uh, 91% chance Clinton. So, real. T- okay, I'll go then. For a bit of context, the polling has clearly moved towards Trump over the past week. It may or may not have something to do with the main news story, which is about Hillary Clinton's emails. We'll come on to that later. The different prediction models are saying very different things. They range from still thinking that Hillary Clinton has a 90% plus chance to 538, which is the model I think most people look at partly because it's most fun and it moves a lot. And if you want people to look at your model, it needs to move a lot. And that one is giving Clinton a 70% chance. And there's a big difference between a 90% chance and a 70% chance. The British press tends to be slightly more frothy and hysterical about these things. I've got a copy of The Times in front of me. The Times headline today is Trump in lead as race enters final week. No, he isn't. Aaron is looking at me and shaking his head. He's not in the lead. He's in the lead in one poll that's gathered a lot of attention, the Washington Post poll. But he's still behind. The fundamentals still overwhelmingly favour Hillary Clinton. But the news this week has favoured Donald Trump. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Maha Rafiatal, Aaron Rapport and Aisha Zarakol. And we're going to talk about a few things. But I want to start with something just to vary it a bit, not just the horse race. There was a very interesting speech on Monday by a man that we've decided should be pronounced Peter Thiel. Let's hear a clip of it first and then we'll talk about it. It's not a lack of judgment that leads Americans to vote for Trump. We're voting for Trump because we judge the leadership of our country to have failed. This judgment has been hard to accept for some of the country's most fortunate, socially prominent people. It's certainly been hard to accept for Silicon Valley. Peter Thiel is from Silicon Valley. Well, not originally. I think originally he's from Germany. But he's a tech entrepreneur. He's a billionaire. He was one of the co-founders of PayPal. I think his big investment success was being an early investor in Facebook. He is a contrarian. He's a notorious contrarian. He's gay, and that's relevant in this context because he was outed against his wishes by a website called Gorka, a gossip site. And he waged a long, attritional and ultimately successful campaign to destroy that site, which he did by bankrolling Hulk Hogan in his legal action against it. And he has come out in his own terms for Trump. So, Helen, what did you take away from this speech? It was pretty extraordinary. It had a fairly extraordinary style of delivery as well. But its central theme in many ways was an attack on the bubble thinking of the baby boomer generation. Did that resonate with you? I am the same age as Peter Thiel, uh, belonging to Generation X, which is often left out in the discussion of the generational struggle between you know, millennials and um, baby boomers. And I must say, whatever else you think about the case that he made for Trump, his attack on baby boomer optimism and the baby boomers' continuous investment in, of their hopes in bubbles that burst did, did resonate with me. 
partly I think that may be because I began my career in Cambridge in a baby boomer bubble. So I understand where that's coming from. No matter what happens in this election, what Trump represents isn't crazy and it's not going away. He points toward a new Republican Party beyond the dogmas of Reaganism. He points even beyond the remaking of one party to a new American politics that overcomes denial, rejects bubble thinking, and reckons with reality. And this phrase, Maho, that what Trump represents is a kind of reckoning with reality, that there is a, you're already giving me that very sceptical look, there is a real story about America that this baby boomer bubble mentality has tried to conceal for the best part of a generation. Does that mean anything to you? I found the speech fairly ridiculous. Um, and I think the reason for this is that there are maybe some Trump supporters who could say that it's for them not about what he euphemistically calls his flaws, which is to say the authoritarian parts of the Trump agenda. But Peter Thiel is somebody who has a long documented history of political engagement that goes back before this race. And that has included saying that democracy is broken and somehow antithetical to freedom, that women should not have been given the vote, that rape culture is a myth, that diversity is damaging to American society and so on. He's somebody who had a legitimate grievance with Gawker, but chose to deal with it by basically bankrupting Gawker through a series of libel lawsuits, of which the Hulk Hogan case was one. So I think there's a contempt for the press there that is probably related to his contempt for democracy. The idea that somebody who is a billionaire with authoritarian, misogynistic, and at best kind of racism-curious politics would be endorsing the billionaire candidate with authoritarian, misogynistic, racist policies is not a huge surprise. So that part of it, of saying it's not about the flaws, struck me kind of as bullshit. The part that is maybe more interesting is the thing about reckoning with reality and where he says, you know, this is what Silicon Valley is attracted to that I think is interesting, is the valley has a mythology about itself that it is somehow outside the established centers of you know, kind of wealth and power in America because it's not in New York or Washington, even if it's now become one of the largest centers of wealth and power anywhere in the world. And that, I think, is very similar to the way Donald Trump is presenting himself as a tribune of the people while sitting in his gold-plated apartment, in his gold-plated apartment building at the top of a real estate empire that he built with his father's inherited wealth. So to the extent that there's some self-delusion about power and privilege, there might be some affinity between Trump and the Valley. Aaron, there is also behind this a kind of Silicon Valley celebration of disruption. The reckoning with reality is attractive for someone like Peter Thiel because he just thinks shaking things up is always a good thing. One of my problems with this whole worldview is that disruption in politics is a far more dangerous and potentially deadly business than disruption in the tech industry. Do you have any of that chill that comes from this that I get from it, which is not just the authoritarianism, but it's the kind of celebration of chaos. Uh, I'm wearing too many layers this morning to have a chill about anything. The one thing about the last clip that was just played, when Thiel says that Donald Trump reckons with reality, this is a big lie, right? Donald Trump is the last person who reckons with reality. Depending on how much stock you want to put in sites like PolitiFact and things like this, Donald Trump makes so many false statements uh, during his speeches that it's hard to keep up with them all. Um, okay, but it just I, I'm going to take the Thiel position here. I think by reckoning with reality, what he means is there's a kind of veil over the entire way that the country 
the United States of America is run, is governed, and anything that punctures that veil is a reckoning with reality. And you could do that by telling lies, I think, on that account. Certainly. That's the shake-up mentality. It's kind of, to reckon with reality is to kind of rip off the veil at whatever cost and show people what lies underneath. Yeah, Donald Trump's one genuine point is clearly that people are not satisfied with the way America has been run, not satisfied with leadership, although I would say that Obama is polling above 50% right now in his approval ratings. But yes, you can puncture that by breaking political norms, uh, using kind of coarse discourse, so on and so forth. The problem with the revolutionary mindset uh, and, and revolution in general is that it does tend to eat its young, as well as destroy large swaths of, of society. And this is true whether you're talking about kind of more secular revolution like the French Revolution or you're looking at an Islamic theocratic revolution in Iran. Right? It's not uh, strictly based on one time period or one ideology. Now, Thiel probably would be one person who would be better off in, in a revolutionary upheaval because he could uh, abscond somewhere else. Likewise, Susan Sarandon, who's saying, right, well, if Trump gets from the left, if Trump gets elected, that's, you know, the kind of fire starter that we need to start a leftist revolution. Again, Susan, you might be the first one up against the wall in that scenario. So think it through. I also think, though, that the reckoning with reality point was about quite specifically about uh, American foreign policy in the Middle East. And Thiel's argument that Trump is actually the one who's saying that the United States is not an exceptional power, it's a normal power that is having to face the consequences or rather denying the consequences of imperial overstretch. Actually, do you agree with that? I mean, is this, is this actually basically a foreign policy speech? I thought there was a strong foreign policy element, but I don't. I didn't hear it as being only about foreign policy. I agree with Helen's point about it resonating with a certain segment of American population who's not uh, happy about the way. I mean, whatever we think of Peter Thiel and who he is and his background, and misogyny and the racism of both Thiel and you know the Trump campaign, I do think they are identifying a general dissatisfaction with the way the, the U.S. government works, and I don't think that's going to go away even if uh, Hillary Clinton wins. And one of the really striking things about it for a supposed libertarian, though I think we agree actually he's an authoritarian, not a libertarian, is it was a defense of big government, because the other thing he said is, I want a country where the government can do big things again, it's not incompetent, it actually sends a man to the moon, it builds the interstate system, highway system and so on. It's very rare in Silicon Valley to hear people come out and say that. I think it's also very striking that there's this attack on baby boomer optimism that's quite a fundamental part of the speech and this investment in bubbles. And yet here is a man who basically is saying that there haven't been any great things to believe in. There haven't been any great optimistic projects since 1973. So he, he thinks the iPhone is kind of pathetic in par- comparison with going to um, the moon. And PayPal, and so, which is kind of pathetic. And he's still got some hope that death can be transcended, which seems to me to be, you know, perhaps the, the ultimate optimistic bubble hope. And yet those parts of him seem to me to be utterly irreconcilable. The critique of the optimism of an older generation at the same time having hugely optimistic hopes for himself. Yeah, I mean, it is true. That's one of the things that he's known for. And again, it's a Silicon Valley view, which is that the limits of the human body can be overcome. So there is that strange sort of mixture of the 1970s and the 2070s going on in this. I don't actually think there's that much libertarianism in a classic sense in Silicon Valley. I think lots of Silicon Valley politics is actually quite authoritarian. I think the problem that Silicon Valley has with government is the idea that they don't think government is doing the things it should be doing, not that they don't think government should do stuff. And I think the 
evidence of that is that the major tech story of the last decade is that all of the large Silicon Valley companies are deeply embedded in the security state and that their leadership is perfectly comfortable with that. So they're clearly okay with fairly authoritarian state power. I think mention of the security state is a nice way to move on to the big news story of the week. Uh, maybe we'll come back to Peter Thiel, whether Trump wins or loses. I'm sure he'll have more to say. If you'd like to see Peter Thiel's speech, you can find the links to it um, if you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore or on Facebook. But we're going to talk now about the FBI. I think we have to. But maybe not so much about what impact it's having on the race. At the end, I'll ask people what they think is actually going to happen next week. But more what it reveals about two things. One, what a Hillary Clinton presidency might be like. I mean, this may be the first little inkling of just how attritional that's going to be. And then secondly, and we can start with either of these, the glimpse that all of this email dump, not the, the ones that have been found, we don't know what was on Anthony Weiner's computer, but all the stuff that's come from WikiLeaks, none of which has got, <laughs> okay, maybe we do know what's on Anthony Weiner's computer, but we don't know what was in those emails. All the, the things that have been released where there's no smoking gun, there's no evidence, overt evidence of criminality. But there is a picture of a world. There's a picture of a world inside Clinton land and what that looks like. Aisha, what, what's your sense? Let, let's start with that. What's your sense of what Clinton land looks like when you actually see how they communicate with each other? The emails show a world that looks just as you would expect it to look like. Uh, there were no uh, surprising revelations and it was politics as usual. And I think that's reassuring to some people. But some people hate what politics as yes. usual looks like, right? Yes. So your view of those emails would depend on whether you're comfortable with the establishment and how politics run in uh, in the United States, or you know, if if you're already resentful of that world, you're not going to like what you hear or see in those emails. But there was nothing surprising or you know devastating as a as a revelation. But it does reveal a world which is, and we know this is true of any elite. It's a world in which favors are traded for favors, but also a kind of world of endless layers of gatekeeping. I mean, that's the thing that struck me. So I met someone recently who had a contact inside Clinton world. And the role that this contact held was assistant to the keeper of Chelsea's diary, which is like something from a kind of Byzantine court. I don't know how many assistants the keeper of Chelsea's diary had, and maybe there's a hierarchy among the assistants. But that's one of the things that does come across here. And I'm not totally sure whether it isn't, even in the context of how elites work, quite distinctively Clintonish. Yes, I actually was the uh, intern to the assistant of the <laughs> keeper of Chelsea's diary when I was, How was that? 21 years. It was uh, not a very well-paying job. No, because at that point, Chelsea was about five years old. That's, that's right. And uh, it was the diary was in Cran, as I recall. Um, but one of the things that we talk about in political science uh, a lot is social capital. If you read Bob Putnam or some of these other fairly well-known writers talking about how social capital is a good thing, social capital is like wealth capital, material capital, only it's our social connections with other people which provide us with opportunities, which would provide us with information and so on and so forth. What we're seeing here, though, which the, the Clinton emails put in stark relief, is just like wealth capital is not equally distributed amongst the population, social capital is not equally distributed amongst the population. And in fact, it might be 
as skewed in its distribution as income and wealth is, right? And that there is a 1% who have these connections that provide them with opportunities and knowledge that the rest of us can only dream of until these uh, WikiLeaks caches come spilling forward. And so that is causing, uh, I think, a lot of resentment, though at the same time, as, as Aisha was saying, right, it's not necessarily a surprise, but it is one thing to kind of imagine it and then another thing to see it in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Practice. But it also, maybe there's a tension here and there's always a temptation to identify hypocrisy in politics, but there seems to be a particularly unequal distribution of social capital among people who ostensibly pay lip service to the idea of redistribution of wealth capital. I mean, that's what infuriates Bernie supporters here, right? To see people who occasionally pay lip service to that idea of a more social democratic politics operating as an absolutely closed elite. I agree entirely. There's a phrase that Thomas Frank used in an article that was in The the Guardian yesterday where he said that the John Podesta emails were a window into the soul of the Democratic Party and the dreams and thoughts of the class to which it's beholden. And I think that there's a lot in that and that what you could see from the emails is that when it comes to matters, I would rule somewhat foreign policy out of this, but not um, entirely, is, is that the substantive political questions of the time are always filtered through a question of who can gain political influence out of them, who can make material gain uh, out of them. And, that and these for are, their children yeah, as well. It's very that, striking that a lot of it is trading favours for their it is, children. That's just what I was going to say, is, 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 is that people who are in Clinton world think that they have a right to make themselves richer by being in Clinton world, and they think they have a right to advance their children's material interests by being in Clinton world. And there's no shame about it. There's no embarrassment in any of this. That is the norm that they've internalised about what being in this world uh, means. And I, I think that it... There's one potential smoking gun in there, I think, of one that came out yesterday from John Podesta to Cheryl Mills, who's Hillary's chief of staff, or she was at least, I'm not entirely sure of her present status, saying that the email should be dumped um, just after the New York Times first run its story. So I think that is potentially significant. But the rest of the picture is really uh, a picture of the entitlement that is the basic premise of Clinton world. As someone who has dual citizenship in the uh, United States and Turkey, I want to uh, make a plug for hypocrisy because in my mind right now, the alternatives are between uh, stark naked reality where people do the same but are not embarrassed about it versus people who do it but are somewhat hypocritical about it and still, you know, talk a good game about uh, distribution and so and. You know, when those are the choices, I think one has to go with at least those who are pretending or making the effort to pretend that they are going to uh, redistribute. Yeah, and that's the thing about hypocrisy. It is people pretending to be good, and the defence of it, it's better to have them pretending to be good than not pretending to be good. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is uh, Hannah Pitkin wrote this book on representation, and she made the difference between a symbolic or descriptive representation, which is where uh, your elected officials look like you and they're from your background, right? But 
they might not necessarily provide you with substantive representation, which is where they actually try to represent your interests. And so you need to think about when you're looking at the candidates, right, how much of this is symbolic representation, which which can matter, right? It can matter for it matters people. for Peter Thiel because he wants to be represented by someone who, as Maha said, is just yeah. like him. Although he, he's getting his policy preferences represented yeah. pretty well so in the Trump gets presidency. The, he gets the double. As well, right? He gets the double whammy, right? There's evidence certainly that people from uh, uh, working class backgrounds actually do take working class issues more seriously in, in Congress, though uh, that's an increasingly low number of representatives and senators from a working class background. So I don't want to entirely poo-poo symbolic representation, but substantive representation is what you're actually interested in. So I don't really care if Hillary Clinton shows up and gives a speech on poverty and she's wearing a $5,000 Armani suit, um, right? I care more about her policy positions and whether she's actually going to follow through on them. It's not necessarily clear to me that what is said behind closed doors translates into policy actions. I feel this is a I'm, I'm taking it back down to the level of the, the current obsessions of, the, of our politics, because I actually agree with what Aaron just said. But to go back to these email revelations, one thing you could also say about it is that it reveals a world that we ought to be relatively familiar with. And it is Clinton world. And it's, it's the world of her husband, too. It's in a way how he operated. It is both a trading of favours, that's politics. It's also very defensive and paranoid about the press and about the media and the ways in which the enemies of the Clintons are seeking to drag them down and expose them. The difference is that in her husband's case, they were operating in the 1990s, and there was no chance of it all being laid bare. But that kind of approach to the world of media, that paranoid gatekeeper approach, doesn't work when there is at least the possibility that the whole thing will be exposed. That is true, though. I think if we recall back to the 1990s, you could say that the Drudge Report revelations that began the Lewinsky affair, which was a leak from the, the grand jury about Bill Clinton's testimony about Monica Lewinsky, was kind of perhaps you know the, the most important of the early political events that were shaped by something that was published on the internet. I mean, it kind of created the Drudge phenomenon. And then it also created or reinforced the paranoia, if you're a Clinton, about the vast right-wing conspiracy that's seeking to, to drag you down. But I would also a bit push back, though, on the idea that what the uh, the Podesta emails reveal is the paranoia of Clinton world about the media. They also really show the collusion of the media world, or significant parts of the media world, particularly CNN, with Clinton world. And the fact that CNN have had to get rid of Donna Brazile after she gave questions to the Clinton campaign during her debates with Bernie Sanders, I think is indicative of um, that. So on the one hand, that you have this paranoia about the enemy media and at the same time you have a part of the media world the New York Times I'd say was included in that and even I think there were some revelations about the relationship between the Politico editor uh, and the uh, Clinton campaign that is very much part of Clinton world too. So let, let's just have a brief conversation about what this might portend for a Clinton presidency a Hillary Clinton presidency because there has been a Clinton presidency and we know how that played out in the end it was bogged down by the end in impeachment and a kind of fight between Clinton and the White House and a Republican Congress over his legitimacy, essentially. This is a glimpse of what's coming, right? If Hillary wins, isn't this just the first in an endless series, given there is so much information out there already, particularly given if Trump loses, the mainstream of the Republican Party or the establishment Republican Party will try and reestablish their bona fides with the base by trying to get her from day one. Is, aren't we just going to have four years of this? I think we probably are, but I'm not 
that disturbed by it. I suppose I should put my cards on the table as a externalist. I'm way more worried about administrations that are really good at keeping secrets than I am at the idea that there would be a Hillary Clinton presidency that would be obsessed with keeping secrets and really bad at doing it. So one of the things about Hillary Clinton, and I don't know if this is really true about sort of the ecosystem around her husband, but Hillary Clinton is very paranoid about the media and desperately wants to keep secrets, but is actually really bad at keeping secrets. And it's not just WikiLeaks or the, the FBI emails. I mean, leaks come out of Clinton world all the time. Um, it's actually quite a leaky you know, sort of cauldron she's got there. So I, I am not that worried in the sense that I think she'll spend a lot of time fighting these kinds of fires, but we'll always sort of know what's going on. But might not the fires in the end lead to a kind of constitutional gridlock or the, the fire fighting that the, the Republican Party will simply seek to indict her or impeach her? Oh, they can't indict her, can they? No. But they can impeach her. I think it's almost guaranteed that uh, the U.S. government is not going to really function for the next four years if Hillary Clinton wins. I think the latest revelations will translate into election results as Hillary Clinton winning by a slim margin, but uh, Republicans keeping definitely the House and maybe even the Senate. Because if I were a moderate Republican who couldn't vote for Trump, what I would do is split the ticket. And I think that's going to be the result. So I think that's we're looking at four years of gridlock. I agree with that. I would just also point out that you're already seeing Republican senators saying if Clinton is elected, uh, they will block any Supreme Court nominee. And we've gone a long time without replacing Antonin Scalia. Merrick Garland already now holds the record for the longest time. Forget about longest time between nomination and having a vote, nomination and even having a hearing, which hasn't taken place in the Senate yet, right? So this is a major kind of breakdown in a political norm. And I'm going to expect, you know, not only polarization, if anything, between the parties to get worse, but within the parties as well, right? You're going to have disaffected Sanders supporters who are going to be looking to kind of create a new left wing base in the Democratic Party. And you're going to have very potentially disaffected Trump supporters uh, doing the same in the GOP. Uh, and I saw the other day now that, you know, Jeff Flake is coming under fire for criticizing Trump. Uh, so if Jeff Flake is seen as insufficiently conservative, he's a senator from Arizona, just to the left of Genghis Khan, then we're in for a rough four years in the GOP. I think the parallel is probably 1972. In October 1972, um, there was a report in the Washington Post by the two Watergate journalists, um, Bob Woodward and um, Carl Bernstein, that the FBI had linked the Watergate burglary to a massive spy operation of the campaign to re-elect Richard Nixon as president, and the FBI was investigating that. Now, as it happened, that FBI investigation announced effectively a few weeks before that election didn't actually have an impact on that election. Nixon went on to win by a landslide, but pretty much the entirety of Nixon's second term was taken up with the fallout of that. And as we know, by the summer of 1974, Richard Nixon had resigned from the presidency rather than waiting for the Senate to impeach him. And I'm not saying that will necessarily end in Hillary Clinton's resignation, but I think there's a very good chance that it will end with impeachment proceedings started against what the outcome would be. Who knows? I just like to point out as well that it actually wasn't campaign to re-elect Richard Nixon; it was campaign to re-elect the president or creep. Yes. One of those true facts of American history that's too great to make up. Okay, let's end this by saying what we think is going to happen or not. You can hedge it. You can refuse to say. I'll say what I think is going to happen, which is I think Hillary Clinton is still going to win because I think in the end. The fundamentals, particularly the fundamentals about turnout, are likely to override 
short-term news cycles but it might be close and I also I just because of Brexit I don't think this is anything like Brexit but it just it's got to give everyone pause I looked at the electoral college map and tried to play the game of giving this state to this person that state to that person and if you really give Trump I think the full benefit of the doubt that the polling is out by a couple of points and that the momentum is behind him so I gave him those states and da 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 and it came out at 269, 269, because I gave him New Hampshire. And on 538, the probability of Trump winning New Hampshire is almost exactly the same as the probability of him winning the White House. I don't think he'll win Pennsylvania. I think that's a real stretch. So maybe it's going to be a tie, but I think Hillary's going to win. I mean, I, I don't know that she's going to win. I'm not going to make a prediction about the outcome of the race, but I do think there's going to be some like last-minute swing state switching in that... States that have looked like they were locked up for her, I think ones that don't have early voting are now going to be very close. I think some of the states that look tenuous, but where there has been a lot of early voting, I think she's probably going to be okay. So I think, you know, you could see it like a North Carolina, Pennsylvania switch or something like that. And then once that happens, I think the whole map starts to look very confusing. So I'm not going to make a prediction about the race. I'll predict that Hillary Clinton is going to win. I mean, it does depend what poll aggregator site you like to look at. Uh, there is a new one by a gentleman named Pierre-Antoine Kremp, who is a French sociologist. Uh, it's the most whiz-bang one to date. It takes into account national polls, state-level polls, historic voting averages, uh, what you had for breakfast, da-da-da-da-da. And uh, that's the one that has it at about 91% right now, and it's getting rave reviews from the statisticians. Of uh, although I would say if I was a Republican, I would say a French sociologist, come on, what do you expect? Oh, Oh, yes. Well, yes, we know all about the French, right, and what they've done. Uh, this is, again, more kind of symbolic <laughs> type representation, right? A little uh, loose. But um, I said if I was a Republican. Oh, if you were a Republican. Yes. Which I might be, but I, yes, if, well, I, we'll if never, I were. Maybe a lowercase r Republican, right? Um, so I, I'm, I'm more or less confident for Clinton. I would say this is not, in the realm of polling, not anywhere synonymous with Brexit, which was a statistical dead heat running up to uh, June 23rd. I think that uh, if nothing happens in the way of revelations or action... Oh, don't say revelations. <laughs> ...between now and um, next Tuesday, then Hillary Clinton will win, as much as anything, because it's still pretty obvious that Trump does not have a get-out-of-the-vote organisation to deliver um, the vote for him. But I think that that is a significant if in terms of what's been gone on since the last time we talked um, about this and I think anybody who really we make a prediction on in the unknown of those kind of unknowns generated by the events of the last few days I, I think it would be foolish to do so. And I think that is a good note to end on because we're a weekly podcast and once upon a time that would have been fine because politics okay a week is a long time in politics but not that much would happen we're not going to reconvene until a week from now after the election this is not going to be broadcast we're recording this on uh, Wednesday morning you will be hearing this we hope uh, on Thursday morning something could happen in the next 24 hours we all have to take into account the fact that in this election events still have the potential to intrude but as things stand you've heard what we think is likely to happen we will some of us maybe all of us be eating humble pie next week or maybe we'll be saying yeah we were right but we're going to start when we meet next week talking about what comes next in the interim as a bit of light relief we also recorded a conversation with the comedian Ahir Shah which is not mainly about Trump, it's actually what it's like to be someone who's young and angry about politics. One of the things that he's angry about is Brexit, uh, but he's also angry about 
something we talked about earlier, how the baby boomers may have let down his millennial generation. But it did feel like the sort of a generation who, not content with pulling the ladder up after them, instead decided to set fire to every ladder factory in the countries and all instruction manuals for building ladders so that we would uh, very definitely never get the uh, chances that they got. So you did feel something? (laughs) Just a touch, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that we should disenfranchise the old, but I think it probably should be weighted depending on how... We'll be putting that out over the weekend and then we'll be here next week to talk about the result of the election. It feels like we've been talking about it for an awfully long time. It's hard to believe it'll actually happen, that there will be a result. Maybe there won't be a result, but I think there will be, and we'll be here in real time to discuss it, having been up the night before. Do please join us then. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.